your Bibles back up to Mark chapter 9. Ethan is going to pass out our handout this morning. Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 38 through 50. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. Because of the length of the passage, I don't think we're going to read it like we have in the past. Um, but Mark 38 through, Mark 9, 38 through 50. I'll give Ethan just a minute to get all those passed out. We've said this the last couple of weeks, but prior to Mark 9, much of Christ's teaching was directed to large crowds and given in parables. But in this chapter, as we have already seen, Jesus, that there is a transition in Jesus' teaching ministry. He's not, from this point on in Mark, he's not as directed to the large crowds as he is more directed to personal discipleship of his, of his disciples. Jesus spends time teaching his apostles with great clarity and candor. Interestingly, of the six occasions Jesus is called teacher in the Gospel of Mark, five of them are found in chapters 9 and 10. In our last study, Christ very specifically dealt with an argument between the apostles about which deserve prominence in Christ's kingdom. If you remember last week, we talked about how um, they were arguing amongst themselves who was going to be greatest. In Mark 9.38, Jesus changes the topic. I'm sorry, John changes the topic. Let's read verse 38. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. This thought, perhaps a follow-up on Christ's statement about receiving children in his name, or the disciples' recent struggle with healing the demon-possessed boy, revealed an issue in John's heart that Jesus immediately began to deal with. Let's read Mark 9, 38 through 41. Would somebody like to read? Elijah, read that 38. Eliza, we'll just read these verses as we get to them. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw him casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. And Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name, that can let him speak. Okay, so verse 40. For he that is not against us is on our hand. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in that name, because he belong to Christ, where he has been to you, he shall not be So we see in this passage a superficial segregation or a superficial separation. John did not have an issue with the success of the man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Instead, he was concerned that the man was not part of their group. How human 
it is for us to begin to develop an us versus them mentality and to seek to negate or to seek to marginalize those that are not us. Much evil has taken place in the name of Christianity as one group maligns or gripes at or casts down another group simply because they follow with not us. John's concern was that this man was not part of their group. Within the independent Baptist movement, we have these same issues. We have groups of different types of independent Baptists, and especially thinking in the United States, but even here in Korea. Jesus was quick to point out this flaw in this mentality. He replied, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can speak evil of me. He was saying that this man would not condemn the name that was the source of his healing power. Jesus continued in Mark 4 and verse 40, For he that is not against us is on our part. The Lord was not suggesting that believers should unite with unbelievers. We want to make this point very clear. God was not telling the disciples to join in with unbelievers. Scripture makes this clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Jesus was not suggesting that the disciples should work with or even support unbelievers. So what did Jesus mean? The authors of the teacher's commentary clarified. How often through church history, Christ's people have forgotten these words to the disciples. We are not to condemn others who act in Jesus' name just because they are not part of our group or our church. Those who act in the name of Jesus are with us, even if they are not of us. The point of this statement was not that we are to overlook sin or to condone that which is wrong. Again, Jesus was not teaching his disciples that it was okay to unite with unbelievers. He was not teaching his disciples that it's okay to ignore sin. Rather, we are to support unity as we are able to because God's work is larger than any one group. There are Christians around the world serving Jesus with all of their hearts. We should encourage them, not necessarily view them with skepticism or suspicion. And in connection with this, for the first time in Christ's teaching in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus speaks of a reward. For whosoever, verse 41, for whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. The whole message of this text is found in Christ's closing words in Mark 9.50. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltiness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. When we foster peace and encouragement to others, it does not go unnoticed by God. He is keeping careful account of those who extend a cup of grace in His name and will reward accordingly. 
But we also see a significant separation. Christ's words in this first part of this passage was words of unity, was words of acknowledging others' work in God's work. But now we see a significant separation taking place here. We'll begin reading with Miss Lydia, verses 42. We'll read through verse 48, and just going around like we do. 42. And whosoever shall send one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone will hung about his neck, and he will cast into the sea. And if they take hands off with the epic, it is better for the end of Diaphragm, then have he had to go to, into the cell, into the fire, that now it's found is Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye, than having two eyes to be cast into the hellfire. Christ's next words are very interesting. A millstone in this context, was a weighted object tied about the neck to ensure death by drowning. Jesus was using the strongest language available to paint the picture that the offending or stunting the growth of a young or immature believer carries a grave penalty. As Jameson put it, there will be stumblings and falls and loss of souls enough from the world's treatment of disciples without any attention from you. Dreadful will be its doom and consequence. See that ye share not in it, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. <laughs> to put these words in context, we need to go back to verse 36, where Mark records, And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. When he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Remember, Jesus and the apostles were in a home in Capernaum that likely belonged to Peter. The child Jesus used as a teaching illustration may well have been Peter's own child. We don't know, but it's possible. Jesus' point about avoiding offense to young believers at all costs would have struck home with this personal illustration. Of course, the desire to avoid offense in no way removes our responsibility to teach, train, and lead those that are growing in their knowledge of Christ. It in no way means that we should negate our responsibility to discipleship, our responsibility to help them grow, to fulfill the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. But it means we have no right to take a brash or a needlessly harsh approach in doing so. Are we to overlook immoral practices? Are we to overlook sin? Obviously not. 
But there is a learning curve when people come to Christ. And we are to graciously accept people for who they are and where they are as we seek to lead them on. Jesus took this warning to would-be offenders even further, saying in essence that if even so much as a hand or foot or eye causes offense, it is better to separate from them. Jesus, um, verse 43, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, and if it be better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Jesus spoke about hell more frequently than any other teacher in Scripture. In fact, hell was more frequently referred to than heaven. And the word translated as hell in this text is Gehenna, which comes from a Hebrew phrase, the Valley of Hinnom, referring to an actual valley outside Jerusalem where wicked King Ahaz worshipped Moloch, the fire god, and even sacrificed his children in the fire. Jeremiah 7.31 says, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. The valley of Hinnom, a place that had long ago been used in pagan worship, was a little more than a dump. It was a place of waste. There are two points here. First, hell is a horrible place that can be avoided through faith in Christ. Second, it would be a horrible thing for a person of faith to offend someone in such a way that they reject Christ as seen in us or waste their lives for the Lord. I cannot think of anything worse than for somebody to go to hell. And I would hate to offend somebody and send them there. It's a horrible thing for, for a person to offend somebody to the point that they reject Christ. A final note is that Christ was not referring to literal surgery with his urging to cut off an offending hand, eye, or foot. The point had already been made that sin comes from the heart. He was referring to the hand that gives offense, the foot that travels to deliver the offense, and the eye, the window to the soul that imagines it. We must realize not only our capacity to do good when we are yielded to the Spirit, but also our capacity to do much harm when we are living in the flesh. We must separate from even the thought of any behavior that would not lead others closer to Christ. Am I going too fast? Shake, a lot of you are shaking your heads, yes? Okay. I'm sorry? What? Okay. I will wait before we go on. Each one of us have within ourselves capacity through the power of the Holy Spirit to do much good when we are yielded to the Spirit. 
when we are following God and allowing Him to control our lives, we have the ability to do much good through His power. But when we allow the flesh to take control, and we yield to the flesh, we have the power to do much harm. We must separate from any behavior that would not lead others closer to Christ. Verse 49 and 50, the spiritual salting, the spiritual salting. Miss Rose, you want to read verse 49 for me? <coughs> is, of course, to the maximum, maximum of the Levitical law that every acceptable sacrifice must be sprinkled with salt to express symbolically its soundness, sweetness, wholesome, and acceptability. Today's, in, today's salt remains salty. It's not going to lose its saltiness. But in the time of Christ, salt was less processed and would lose its effect over time, rendering it useless. Matthew 5.13 says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. So Christ's exhortation to have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another carried the idea that we are to live the life of sacrifice that is well-prepared and well-pleasing to the Lord. The Apostle Paul taught this in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We are to be the salt in, the, in our world more than we are to pour salt on a wound. Has anybody ever poured salt on a wound? You have? Can you tell me about it? Did you do it on yourself or somebody else? I'm sorry? Yourself? Uncomfortable. It does not feel good to put salt on a wound. You and I are to be salt, but we're not to use that salt to wound and to hurt others. Salt 
is also a great preservative. Like a fire, it burns in a wound, but it brings healing and restoration. Salt brings healing and restoration. Similarly, as people come in contact with the truth in the lives of believers, they should find the grace of God that brings deliverance and growth. Peace among believers and a powerful witness to the lost result when we seek not to put salt on others, but to be salty within. The disciples had set themselves up as the in crowd, the arbitrators of all that was good and right. Jesus was teaching them to examine their motives before they sought to exclude others. We have all at one time ascribed to the us versus them mentality. But people of faith must learn, we must learn the, uh, the us for them mentality. The, the us for them mentality. The lost and the wayward are not our enemies. Those who serve Jesus from their hearts and just happen to belong to a different group or, or a different church are not our enemies. Like the disciples, we must learn this lesson. Otherwise, the peace that Christ spoke of will not be ours. Now, I want to say again, we said it earlier, God is not teaching here, in this teaching about unity, God is not teaching us for us to unite with unbelievers. He's not teaching unity at all costs. He's not teaching ignore sin. And He's not teaching ignore wrong doctrine. But he is teaching that our emphasis should be on serving others and not being an offense. Let God handle the issues. Continue to teach the truth. Continue to go forward. Continue to train and disciple. But let God deal with the other issues. We need to have an us-for-them mentality instead of an us versus them mentality. Do you see the difference? Let's go ahead and let's have a word of prayer. We're going to close a few minutes early this morning. Um, but let's have a word of prayer. And then next week we will get into chapter 10. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are contained in your word. Lord, we understand that your word teaches that unity is very important. It also teaches that doctrine is important. Lord, help us to not have the us versus them mentality, but to have the mentality us for them. Help us to be servants, as you were teaching your disciples earlier in this chapter, to serve one another, instead of trying to elevate our own selves to a place that's really not ours to give or to elevate ourselves to. Lord, help us to be servants. In your name we pray. Amen.